Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Badass Women's Hour, the podcast. This is our little roundup of the best bits of the live show for you gorgeous podcast subscribers. This week, we're talking to journalist extraordinaire Amelia Gentleman about her exclusive reveal of the Windrush scandal. And we're talking about why you should be talking about poo with Deborah James, a.k.a. Bal Babe, specialist in bowel cancer. Plus, of course, our take on all this week's hot news. Underwear, armpit hair, many imitators, but no one compares. Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. One, two, three, four! Kicking off, of course, it is our roundup of the news, stuff that's caught our eye this week. Um, I'm going to kick us off because I am... Just really, I don't even know excited as well, but I feel really vindicated with this story. And this is the news this week that Bill Cosby has been officially found guilty of drugging and sexually assaulting uh, 30-year-old Andrea, well, 30-year-old at the time, Andrea Constant, a former basketball player. I could not, I couldn't believe actually how elated I was when I read this story. Not because I'm elated at somebody being assaulted or you know somebody being charged for it, but because a few months ago when Bill Cosby's allegations were all in were all in court and he it was mistrialed and he was let go and it really felt to me like what more do women need to do to be believed so was there another another case went ahead then did it say he was it was mistrialed and then he yeah, got tried so, again um yeah so there was a mistrial first time around there was a mistrial and i'm sure you all saw you both saw the kind the cover on time which mm-hmm. was i think 37 women who yeah. accused him and they found all these women all with the same stories same behavior really clear detailed accounts everyone knew it was happening it was a big big cover-up and still they could not get the trial through and it felt like those women had come forward and really um we're talking about this phrase a lot spoken the truth to power uh, but really pushed on this powerful figure and nobody had supported them that was really how it felt when the trial collapsed but they went back they tried him again and this time he has been found guilty. Oh, Do no. you think it's the post-Harvey Weinstein era that has enabled them yes, to ultimately be successful this time around? I actually think so. The Cosby case first time happened at the beginning of the Weinstein, you know, of the but beginning what, of the Me a, Too a, blow up. A, a, a way before though, sort of a, a start the rumblings were a year before Me Too blew oh, up. Oh yeah, people mm. knew about it, but the case yeah. itself was in court okay. at the beginning of Me Too. Okay. And... I think I think one of the things that happened was actually the horror at this mistrial mm. was so strong that they had no choice but to try it again. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so they couldn't kind of say, look, we've had a mistrial. We're probably not going to get it through second time. We've just got to let it go. And I think that was because of the impetus and strength behind the Me Too movement. But it was only one of the 37 women, though, that this trial's been against. So yes. He's, he's going so, to prison for 30 years, I think, isn't he? Something like that. So essentially, for, given his age, he's in his 80s now, he's going to be, it's a life sentence. Um, he has. They did ask to have his bail revoked, which hasn't happened, but he is under house arrest now. Um, but for me, it was just this, particularly after, I don't know if you saw the Northern Ireland case a few weeks ago mm-hmm. about the rugby players who, they again, were not found not guilty. And it, it it felt like all these women could say whatever they wanted, but nothing would change. And for me, Bill Cosby was really about change. So mm. I was really... I just felt really proud, I think, when I saw that. I'm really sad. There's so many of these men who I grew up watching on TV who have turned out to be total monsters. And it's just like, I don't know, it's just really sad. So these men that you sort of looked up to as a kid going, oh, you know, like I remember watching The Cosby Show and loving The Cosby Show, being absolutely in love with Lisa Bonet and, you know, to think that this man has been doing these things and Jimmy Savile and all of those. just And Rolf Harris, I'm like, what? Oh. But the thing that plays in my mind is you need to live in a country that allows uh, Mm -hmm. for a retrial to happen. Not every legal system has that facility. So if you have been found not not guilty or a case has been thrown out, you can only bring it back to court with new substantive evidence or by finding new victims, witnesses. And so that's the disheartening thing. Where are there other cases that have been thrown out and actually the legal system isn't set up for those people to ever be held to account at any point? No, it is tough. But I like to think that maybe this is the outrage at Northern Ireland and then this decision in the Cosby case, maybe this is the turning point when we start to believe women. Mm. That's what I'm hoping. But we're going to talk speaking truth to power now because this is a lovely phrase. Nat, tell us where this phrase has come from. Yeah. Well, well I, I had to ask you which one it was. Is it speaking, <laughs> holding? Um, but So I, I am talking about speaking truth to power because... I last week we covered the Windrush and I saw a brilliant tweet at the top of journalist uh, Amelia Gentleman's page and she was talking about the fact that The Guardian gave her time and space to go off and cover this story and it reminded me about the role of journalism which is speaking truth to power and holding institutions and businesses and individuals to account for the things that they get wrong or the things that they need to do better. And I thought, we don't celebrate that enough. We don't celebrate the fact that a a team of journalists would have spent months, probably unpaid, uncovering what was going on with President's Club. There would have been lots of people that were spending time on other stories to bring them into the fore so we could have this discussion. And I wanted to speak to Amelia just to find out what, what was the process, what was it like, and... And how proud she must be of the fact that these stories are being told and the public have got behind these individuals, so much so that an individual with cancer has now been given a right to stay and got his treatment. Yeah, Mm -hmm. she has done an amazing job and we are very lucky to have her on the phone with us tonight. Hi, Amelia. Hello, hi. Amelia, Amelia, Amelia. My skin is tingling when when you say that about the the cancer patient because it's absolutely true. It's so so um happy making i spent yesterday afternoon waiting for him to come out of the um home office immigration center in croydon um after after asking for his um papers finally to be approved mm-hmm. and within 2 hours he got his um the first step on the way to getting um citizenship here and it's it was amazing but 
of course, it's taken him nine years um, for that to happen. So it's it's a kind of very mixed feeling of, of happiness and real, real fury. Well, you're making Harriet cry you're right now. You're literally making me cry. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like, I've, sort of, I want to, I've got all these questions I want to ask you and I've just lost yeah. my train of thought on them. But let's start at the beginning with this. Did you, when you first started looking into this story, I guess, how did you find it? What, what was it about it that you went, I think there's something here and I need mm. to keep digging on it? Mm. Um, so, so I had an email from a charity in Wolverhampton who were very worried about one of their clients who was a woman um, who'd been in Britain for 50 years since she was nine. She'd come as a child from Jamaica. She'd worked here all her life. She'd even worked in the House of Commons, serving food in the canteen for a while to MPs. Um, and at the age of... Um, 58 or 60 perhaps um, she had had a letter from the Home Office saying that she wasn't here legally um, and that she needed to report every month to the local Home Office Immigration Centre um, and in November on one of those reporting sessions because she still hadn't managed to sort out her papers she was taken into detention and put in Yarswood which is this really notorious um, immigration detention centre mm. so I had this email um, and I you know, get a lot of really worrying emails, but that was just a kind of particularly um, alarming one because I'd never heard of somebody who'd spent all of their life in this country um, being treated in that way. So I went to Wolverhampton, and from there, once we published one story, um, more people got in touch. And to begin with, it absolutely wasn't um, clear to me or indeed to the immigration charity who I was working with or indeed to the MPs who was asking about this, it wasn't at all clear that this was a problem that was going to turn out to be um, something that was happening on the scale that we now know it's happening. Yeah. Amelia, one of the reasons that I wanted to, to talk to you and you know, fangirl and congratulate you is that I think we've forgotten that this is what journalism is and this is what journalism is for. And in an era of clickbait where people are you know, consuming things quickly, be, having the time to let a story unfold and then that story unfolding so much so that you're pushing government to do the thing that it should have done way back when. How did you get ultimately the Guardian on board to give you the time and space to do that, especially in this competitive sort of clickbait journalism space? Yeah, it's really made me think actually um, how amazingly lucky I am to work for The Guardian because in many ways it is quite an old-fashioned um, newsroom in, in that we're, we're not... Um we're not, I mean, we're interested in, in the numbers of people that read us, but we're not endlessly under pressure to write stories that get um, lots and lots of clicks. And a lot of, the, a lot of the kind of things that I have to do for my job are in areas that actually people aren't that interested in on a kind of massive scale. So mm -hmm. around, for example, welfare reform, which we know is really important, but which isn't something that's ever going to... Go, go viral. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really great to have editors who um, are supportive and sort of know that there are just some things that you have to look at re regardless of what the interest is. And in a way, immigration is an, is an area that is quite difficult. It doesn't always make um, for amazing headlines. Mm -hmm. So they, they were just very supportive and let me go on looking at it um, over six months. And the really amazing thing is that even... Two weeks ago, two weeks ago today, there, there really was no um, 
almost no political response at all. Mm. There'd been a bit of a noise about this this man um, who, who we were calling Albert Thompson, who'd been asked to pay £54,000 for cancer treatment. And that had been discussed in the House of Commons um, at, at PMQs. But apart from that, all, all of the other cases that, that um, had been written about in the paper and really were very upsetting cases and very cases by things which just gone really badly wrong. None of that had been, um, had really triggered any political response. And then that's why it's been so extraordinary to see suddenly in the past two weeks, um, you know, we've had three apologies separately from Theresa May. Um, Amber Rudd has been on the um, floor of the, the House of Commons three times to apologise and once in front of the Select Committee in, in the space of two weeks. And she'll be appearing on Monday for the fourth, no, sorry, for the third consecutive Monday in front of the House of Commons to answer questions on it. It's really extraordinary. That's amazing. Um, Amelia, I wanted to ask you, in this, we're in a world where I think journalism has got a really bad press. We get accused of yeah. fake news. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think about journalists hacking phones. Do you think this might be a time when we start to see journalism as the really important job that, obviously I'm biased, but yeah. I think it but is. Is it a, yeah. a turning point where it's not about the celebrity of journalism, but it is about speaking truth to power, about reporting what is going on? I I don't know. I mean, you know, we have to see what happens over the next couple of weeks. And um, I think journalists have got such a bad kind of reputation that it will take quite a lot for people to um, change their opinion. Um, but I think, I mean, I think definitely, definitely this, this um, has been something that's been really um, worthwhile to work on because... Even if even if we're a bit sceptical about some of what the government is saying or doing at the moment, they have done some really constructive things that will be positive. And so that is, mm. you know, that is very satisfying in that they've um, made real commitments to people caught up in this situation that, that they will get citizenship, that they won't have to pay money for it, and that they will get compensation. And so I guess um, we just have to keep on looking at how that is implemented and making sure that um, these aren't empty promises. Mm. Amelia, what do you think would have happened if you hadn't investigated this story? Do you think that this would have come out eventually or...? Um... Um, well, yeah, I hope so. I really hope so. I mean, this is what I keep asking myself is, you know, these stories, we came across this one that I mentioned in Wolverhampton back in November, but they weren't new at all. This has been happening quietly all over the country since 2013 to, to a large number of people that we don't really know about. And I keep asking, you know, why why wasn't it, why why weren't the MPs who were, who were being asked to help with this, why weren't they getting outraged? Why, why, why weren't the kind of lo- local newspa- newspapers getting outraged? And I kind of know the answer a bit, which is that if you have an immigration problem, you don't want to tell anybody about it. Not not in this current climate. You just you do, some of the people I spoke to didn't tell their didn't tell their family about it. They were so ashamed. They were so worried. Mm. So you're not you're not going to go running to a newspaper. You might not even know particularly that you have to go to your MP, um, and you 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 don't have the local support of law centres um, that you might have done kind of ten years ago with. Mm legal aid funding, people able to help you, because a lot of that has, has kind of gone and it's quite fractured. So, um, 
yeah, it absolutely would have would have come out um, it, eventually. And in fact, you know, there have been um, re- reports um, on this subject done by legal aid charity. They just hadn't really um, somehow. It's about getting caught, into the mainstream. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, what do you think is going to be the next kind of, I guess, the next iteration of this? What is there still more to come? Do you think we're going to see big changes from the government? What's what's going to happen next? So, there's, so Amber Rudd and the Home Secretary in her in the last two weeks has said a few really interesting things. Um, she said that she wants the Home Office to become more compassionate, and she said it has. Um, become too obsessed with strategy and policy and lost sight of the individual. And if if that's the only kind of change to come about from all of this, then that's quite positive and interesting. I slightly have my doubts about how easy it will be able to, it will be for her to implement that because you can't just say we want to have a compassionate policy and then lo and behold it happens because a lot of a lot of the problems come about obviously because um the immigration act is is written in a way that it is and for there to be a truly compassionate home office they need to repeal a lot of that legislation but anyway i mean just on the face of it that 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 is something that's quite interesting um and the other thing in terms of what else is there to come out we we um so at the guardian we've been looking really in a very very focused way at um the niche issue of people um, in the Windrush category. So people who've arrived before 1973 who essentially do have the right to be here but perhaps didn't fill in the correct form and as a result uh, were harassed by the Home Office. But um, the, my inbox and my colleagues' inboxes are all full of people coming forward and saying, you know, the, the, the Windrush is one thing, but we um, are other people caught up in the immigration system with really different kinds of problems that have been sprung up by the hostile environment. And so that's that's definitely what we're going to be looking at mm. next. That was going to be the question I was going to ask. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for answering so succinctly. Um, I guess, and finally, Amelia, do you feel proud about what you've achieved? I really hope you do. I feel... I feel bewildered that, <laughs> that you know i spent such a long time trying to get people really angry about this or not angry but i, I spent such a long time trying to get a, a kind of political response to this and trying to get the home office to acknowledge that there was something going wrong and and that, uh, two weeks ago exactly two weeks ago to get today there was there just wasn't any response at all and so to see the kind of um, to see the extraordinary about turn, it, it's, I, I don't think I feel proud of it. I just feel kind of sort of <laughs> amazed and a bit like it's, it's just so hard to to comprehend, really. So, Amelia, I want to say two weeks ago, our producer brought us this story and I was the first... So I'm of Jamaican descent and I was the first one to go, right. meh, it's a non-story. I mean, it's right. an important right. story, but where's the women's angle? You know, how right. are we going to cover it? What are we going to add to something that is fundamentally horribly wrong? And then last yeah. week, we found we found our angle, which was, this has happened, you know, let's get an immigration lawyer so we understand the, the nuance of this because it's being yeah. conflated and these people, you know, they're not illegal immigrants, they're my granddad, they're my uncle, etc. Yeah. And then the angle yeah. of the I mean, journalism think, too. Yeah, I do, th- I do think that the, the kind of conflation issue is 
is really um, worrying and Mm -hmm. that we have to be totally, I mean, Mm -hmm. journalists have to be totally on their toes about it because um, that that certainly seems to be the way that the government is going in, in its in its new apologies or new responses is that they just say, actually, our our immigration policy is extremely popular. Illegal immigration is something that everyone wants us to clamp down on, and our policies are geared towards that. And and that, you know, that is as may be, Mm. but they need to be reminded again and again that this isn't about illegal immigration at all. It's about people who just for whatever complicated reasons haven't filled a form in, didn't know they had to fill a form in, um, and have been punished for that with the most extraordinary vigour. But I wanted to hold hands up there because literally it was two shows ago and I was like, "Mm, no, no. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Well, you know, it's always, as as a journalist, I mean, we, we, I think, at The Guardian, we're so... um, dealing all the time with people writing in and saying, this terrible thing to do with immigration has happened, this mm-hmm. terrible thing has... And we write a lot of stories about people who've got difficulties with immigration. Mm-hmm. And so it was quite hard to disaggregate this and say, yes, the Home Office is, is sort of often um, a difficult place to deal with and, you know, we might not always agree with its its decisions. Mm-hmm. But this, this issue is separate yeah. because this isn't about judgment. This is about a really, really bad mistake having been made yeah agreed amelia it has been fascinating to talk to you thank you so much for joining us and we think you've done an amazing job so thank you very thank much you. for doing thank it. you for having me yeah <laughs> um if people want to kind of ask you some more questions or find out more from you uh you can find amelia on twitter at amelia gentleman very straightforward i'm a little bit in love with amelia gentleman now yeah. and it's, and it's, it's really quite nearly well, I was looking at you and I was like, Harry, it's going. But as soon as she started talking, I got that, that heart pang and, you know, this sort of the cold shudder because it, it, it's, a, it's a privilege. I was looking for the right word. It's a privilege to be able to be a journalist, first of all, and to tell stories that really make a difference to society, to someone's life. And when there has been an injustice and something has gone wrong, to use the thing that you do as your day job to shift perspective, to shift understanding. And I think because in the UK we have got into a position of thinking about immigration and then thinking about show what I do, thinking about shows like Border Force, so therefore they, you know, there, there must have been an issue and immigration is, is so contentious. The whole story had got conflated and I don't think people really understood what, what the background was. So for a journalist to take the time to sift through the emails and realise this is a gross... Um, you know, injustice, and then dig deeper and deeper and deeper. I it's must just admit, brilliant. you you two are trained journalists, aren't you? Both mm-hmm. of you. See, well, I actually never trained. I just did it for fifteen years. Same <laughs> <laughs> so thing. You're lying. Are you like faking it till you make it? Uh, but for, so for me, I have a I have a different perspective on journalism because that's never ever been my background. And for me, you know, I see a lot of I equate journalism with things that you know I don't know Daily Mail or like sensational stuff Mm -hmm. and it wasn't till this story and also the President's Club story where I'm like oh actually there's nuances within journalism and there is journalism which is a force for good because the President's story wouldn't have come out without journalism Mm -hmm. I don't really think this Windrush case would have would have made the headline as quick and uh, and had the the powerful impact that it did without mm-hmm. Amelia and one a benefit of social media I think as well because had it have been you know the old world of just a newspaper print going out 
probably not. But social media take, just, and yeah. taking it on and being like, whoa, ho, 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 and just really getting this out there and fanning the flames, that has helped too. But I do think journalists on, are on a roll. People are remembering about reportage and investigative journalism, which is the bit that's been forgotten. Yeah. And also actually seeing the impact that they can make. And I think journalists had forgotten it. Mm. So I think sort of six, seven years ago, journalists were chasing clicks. They were chasing clicks and they'd forgotten that, not forgotten, but they'd been kind of taught that the clicks, the hits, the number of people that read your story, that is more important than the story itself. Do you think there needs to be a different name for journalism, though? Because I feel like if you are writing a story about what, I don't know, Cheryl Cole was wearing at the weekend, that that's that's not necessarily journalism. If you're a celebrity journalist or a fashion journalist, then maybe it is. I I think investigative journalism is completely different Mm. and it is a different craft uh, and there is a different nuance. The same as producing entertainment, like uh, Saturday night TV versus producing documentaries. It's still producing TV content, but it's a different lane. And news journalism is different from features journalism. And, you know, it is, it's like saying, you know, you're an engineer and some engineers mend cars and other engineers build skyscrapers. You know, it is a, mm. it's a broad industry. Um, and I think it maybe has been tarnished. The word has been tarnished a bit. And it's a really tough industry at the moment. Do you think celebrity journalists have tarnished the industry and this whole conflation with social media and saying things to roll people up because yeah. of the clickbait and the shares and therefore the trust and... That thing of seeing journalists as people that speak the truth, I'm quoting quoting fingers here, has also all got a bit blurry. I actually think, I think the trust went, um, I don't think it was celebrity journalism that did that. I think everyone always kind of knew that the sort of National Enquirer type journalism was not the same as what they were writing in the FT. My mum still reads the National Enquirer. (laughs) So, I mean, it has its place. It is great entertainment. Um, So I think everyone sort of knew that. I think where the real distrust came was around the phone hacking scandal. Mm. And when people thought that actually, and and journalists do this, journalists set themselves up as sort of holier than thou. Mm -hmm. You know, we speak truth to power. That's what we do. We investigate (laughs) and uncover the bad behavior. And then when it actually was uncovered that there were lots of journalists perpetuating that bad behavior, I think that was when it took a real dive. Mm. Yeah, I'm 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 with you, but I'm I'm trying to Google something that I learned. Perez Hilton. You talk no, about Perez Hilton. No, no, I think no, no, Perez no. Hilton definitely brought journalism down. That is celebrity journalism. He's a blogger though, right? Is he a journalist? Oh, that's a great question. Ask a journalist. That's a great question. Uh bloggers and journalists are technically changed. different, but yeah. very conflated oh, now. Interesting. Yeah. Oh interesting. Uh, oh bloggers, writers, journalists, and columnists. Oh. Yeah. So columnists, columnists fall into the, the celebrity angle. You're voicing an opinion yep. versus, again, investigative. Well, we've got which a we have columnist on the show tonight, we haven't do we? Indeed. We've got Deborah James, so we yeah. can ask her, can't ask we? Ask her, we can, we can. Uh, we'd love to know what you think. Do you trust journalists? Do you... <laughs> Please tell us. Yes, because like... <laughs> no, if you, if you disagree, if you don't think, if you don't trust them, tell us. Be honest. Yeah, but in a nice way. In a nice way. Uh, Emma, tell us, what is your news story that's caught your eye this week? Well, it's lucky it's caught my eye and not Natalie's eye because I think she might quiet this article. (laughs) It says, time please is drinking becoming as socially unacceptable as smoking. So basically, there's, there's the next generation coming through 
Well, they're talking about 16 to 24-year-olds and they're basically saying that a quarter of them are teetotal. But then I'm like, you're talking 16 to 24-year-olds. <laughs> if you're 16 be. and 18, you should be teetotal. Um, but there's apparently there's just this massive decline now and they're really kind of concerned about the future of alcohol consumption um, because people are just opting out. And yeah, I mean, I'm probably 90%. Well, I say 90% teetotal and people are like, you normally drunk 100% of the time. Like, what I mean is, 90% of the times when you would be drinking, I'm not drinking. Um, and I wonder what you thought about this. Do you feel that uh, alcohol is becoming socially unacceptable? I actually kind of hope that it is. I, my, <laughs> my heart sinks a little bit whenever anyone says, do you want to go for drinks? Really? Yeah. And that's because I'm old. It's because I'm old now and I'm in my mid-30s and in the oldie days of my 20s, I could quite happily go out for drinks until whatever I am and wake up the next day and go to work. I mean, I did some terrible things. I, I, I definitely went to work drunk several times in my 20s and got through the day. Yeah. Now I have to lie on the sofa with a very easy access to Domino's Pizza and watch very low level films because that's all I bring and cope but with. I do f- and I resent that. I resent losing a day to a hangover. But I think drinking is really weird. We have this thing in this in our culture especially and it's right on a Friday night everybody you're going to go to this one location and you're all going to buy this stuff that makes you basically not be able to walk properly makes you slow your words makes you not responsible for your actions and then you're going to go home that's a weird thing to do uh, for anyone that, that tell can us hear, why you love it there's a sound that, that's me opening some wine right now uh, so it's not a case of loving it I just I like a good glass of red wine I don't drink any old rubbish I like a good glass of wine with food. It's the same as liking great chocolate. I do think there's a decline for a younger generation. None of my younger siblings drink. And so at Christmas... Do you know why they don't drink? Are they part they, of this, like, Instagram, go to the gym? They don't like... Smoothies. Well, no, they just don't like the taste. They never got into beer. I didn't drink until I went to uni. And at uni, where the social entertainment happens in a pub or in a club, I was like, oh, this is what happens in a bar. I'd never been to a pub. It wasn't a thing that we did. We went out to like a, a what what were they called like a rave or like a party thing that you do <laughs> as a young person. So long ago, we can't actually remember. Yeah. Even that old. It, 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 you know what it is? It's because I wasn't really. I went to concerts. Drunk. No, no, and I didn't like alcohol pops. <laughs> I don't like sugary drinks with lots of chemicals. Anything that's blue doesn't work very well for me. So I was never a WKD Smirnoff icy type of girl. So I got to uni and I was like, oh. And so I drank red wine at uni. And I drank champagne at uni. I drank well. And so, uh, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not condoning or, or, or trying to push any, anyone to drink. I, but I do think there's a generation that's changing. But I don't think that people that do drink should feel like there's a stigma. We had a guest on that was talking about uh, self-harm and saying anything that you do to take the edge off is self-harm. And we were laughing, so I was like, well, that's a Monday with a glass of red wine. Because it does. You get home and you can just decompress. And I don't want to be made to feel bad about that. But do you think it's different types of drinking, though? Because there's one thing to have, you know, a couple of glasses of really good alcohol, whatever that is, with food or as part of a kind of an experience. There's quite another, and I used to do this when I was younger, and that was literally, let's get drunk as quick as we can, because actually you couldn't even have a night out unless you were drunk. And we've seen pictures of that, the younger generation, generation people like laid out on the street all these ambulances but that's but that's for me that is unhealthy and i tend not to do things that are 
I too unhealthy. That's, I think we are deluding ourselves a bit on that because really? I do think there is a level of drinking snobbery, right? There's a level of drinking snobbery which says, well, yeah, I quite like a drink, but I like a really nice glass of wine, mm. which is okay because I'm not drinking, uh, you know, what did I drink in my in four my tequilas. student days? Yeah, four tequilas <laughs> and then a Smirnoff Ice Chaser. Yeah, that's, you know, so that's okay. But actually mm. what the research shows us is, you know, if you're drinking the maximum amount every week, it doesn't really matter how you're getting it. Still yeah. not good for you. Yeah. Yeah, I accept that, but uh, I like someone called Lucy Mangan, who wrote an article in The Stylist. He said, why can't women be left alone to drink in peace? Or why can't women be left to drink alone in peace? And I agree. Uh, they're all self-harming. <laughs> <laughs> There's a load of stigma around women just going out and having a nice glass of wine by yourself. Is there at stigma a bar. about women drinking? Yeah, that, that, apparently, according to this article, women alone having a drink at a bar or drinking alone I'm at not home. Drinking alone at a bar. And you telling... can't do that without being accosted. Well, I was about to say, I thought you were going to say without being a weirdo, because I was about to say, but oh, I no. do that. Yeah, okay. no, I would, well, do you know what? I wouldn't do it in every single play. I'd be selective about where I did that. Yeah, I wouldn't do it at the Slug and Lettuce. <laughs> and it, so maybe there is a snobbery. Drinking snobbery. That's what's e- happening every here. Every time I've sat in a bar by myself, because I've normally been waiting for somebody, or maybe I'm waiting on a date, and that maybe that date's been a bit late. Every single time I've been chatted up or bought a drink, it's impossible to just have a drink alone. It's such a a hard life to be you, Emma Sexton. (laughs) My heart bleeds for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. Get ready because we're getting, I was going to say deep and personal. I mean, I think that's what we're getting. We're getting deep and personal in our next section. We've got the fantastic Deborah James in studio, sun columnist, bowel cancer survivor, expert, extraordinaire, superstar. We love her. Deborah, welcome. Thank you for having me, ladies. (laughs) (laughs) I love the round of applause. Brilliant. (laughs) Now, obviously, we've had you in the show before, but for anyone who doesn't know you and doesn't know what you do, give us a little bit about you. So um, I I go by the the name Bow Babe, which 
you know, find hilarious. We have to, I think it's a pre-warning that, that tonight we are going to be talking about poo. Works for me. <laughs> Works for me. Is that, is, that, is that okay? So we are going to be talking about poo. So what do I do? I basically am a suncomalist. So I write um, every week about my journey with cancer. I was diagnosed at the age of 35 uh, with stage four bowel cancer. Um, and last week, um, having had 21 cycles of chemotherapy and five operations, I actually got clear scan. <laughs> So it's kind of, um, I'm in a position where I don't want to kind of go, I'm all clear, but to get from my starting point to where I am now is a bit of a miracle, Can to I be ask honest. a question? Because it's always what you say, because I was going to say congratulations, and then I was like, well done, and it, I was going to have that awkward moment. So uh, yeah. what... What what do you what do say? You say? When I, do you know? That? I'll take congratulate. Well, well done, body. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, well done. done you. Well, I think it's well done to the team, actually. To be mm. honest with you, and I think to you know, I was speaking to somebody the other day. You've got to have a bit of luck on your side as well. And I would say I've had a little bit of luck. Mm. Um, Were you expecting it, or was it? No. No, oh, not at all. So it was. I was. I always jump to the worst. I think all of us do, don't we? So I jumped to the worst conclusion and assumed right. I'd been off chemo for about ten weeks. Had what was in theory one of my last tumours out of my lungs, and I thought, oh well, in that time it's all grown. And I got it. I got it clearer. And I was even my oncologist was quite shocked. Wow. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know what? Even if it's for six weeks, I'm going to take it. I'm going to drink the wine, <laughs> enjoy it, <laughs> make the most of it. Um, but yeah, so I've been as part of my journey. I think I. I've shared my journey very much to raise awareness that you're never too young to undergo kind of what I'm going through um, and to maybe not prove it's not a battle um, and I hate those words but to prove you can still live a life with cancer and I think it's debunking those myths about what cancer looks like so yeah and so you've got a new campaign we do we does that is that right yeah we do so we're launching a new campaign um this week um that is called no time to lose uh, so it's a collaboration um well it's, it's a sun call to action right <laughs> it, is, it is one of our songs call, call to action and we want your help um so which is why i'm really grateful that i'm here with you ladies tonight so we are launching two main aspects um to our campaign the first is that we wish to lower the screening um, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Now I know that you're going to think this is bonkers, this doesn't include you, I'm 36, but we want to lower it from fi- uh, from 60 so currently the screening age wow. is 60 down to 50. Now in Scotland it's already 50 in the USA it's already 50 so it kind of seems like a natural move to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a petition set up by a lovely girl called Lauren who sadly lost her mum at the age of um, 55 a couple of years ago and she has been campaigning tirelessly to now get 450,000 signatures on a on a campaign that went to Parliament on Thursday. So that campaign has been delivered already and we were there with our well banners. Well done, Lauren. Well done, Lauren, which I think is an amazing achievement. And then alongside Bowel Cancer UK, not only do we want to lower the screening age, we also want to make sure that everybody is not too embarrassed to talk about their poo. I dressed yeah. up, I, I, I go on the train in a poo costume. I've seen your Insta stories, it's amazing. If anybody can get people to talk about poo, it's you, Deborah. I was thinking, I, I, it's, I met some lovely ladies who I think are on your show next um, in um, in the kitchen just now and I said to them well they asked me what what, what are you talking about and I was like oh, bowel, bowel cancer and they were like hmm interesting <laughs> I was thinking that is the best topic on a Saturday night what are you going to go and talk about so I have two questions uh, the first one why 50 uh, yep. over any other over age any other because age, yep. you, you know you said you found out at 35 yep. 
Um, and then secondly, what should I be looking for in my poo? Oh, excellent. So <laughs> why 50? In an ideal world, I would love for it to, say, start at 30. I think we all would. Uh, but the reality is by lowering it to 50, we could be saving about 4,500 lives per year. So 16,000 people die wow. of bowel cancer. It is the second biggest killer. And that's what our campaign is called, No Time to Lose mm. with number two. Mm. It is the yeah. second biggest cancer killer in the UK. And by lowering it down... Um, kind of 250 it could save four and a half thousand lives and lots of money for the nhs mm-hmm. um because actually when bowel cancer is caught at an earlier stage it's much more treatable so the key thing is when it is caught um at an early stage 97 percent of people will survive wow okay and when it is caught at my stage only seven percent of people will survive um so that is the kind of key thing here is that I have a daughter, I know that some of you guys do, and um, I have a daughter who is um, eight, and she, uh, by the time she is 40, uh, so in 2050, um, researchers suggest that actually bowel cancer is a totally curable disease. Okay. Oh, really? Is that what they're aiming for? That is it? what they're aiming for. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going to necessarily get there, but with a lot of kind of, um, you know, awareness, mm. it's one of those things where if it's caught early, we can totally stamp it out in our you know in my daughter's generation which i think is amazing um and so so yeah so that's the key thing if we if we were to lower it i mean ideally we'd love to lower it down but it's all about money at the end of the Mm. day isn't it and actually there are only two and a half thousand people i say only i'm one of them who is diagnosed under the age of 50 so whilst yeah and and that affects loads of families and and i'm one of them um i think you know even if we bring it down to 50 that will then affect the rest of us in terms of you know if you're 40 um and somebody you know is kind of getting on to 50 you'll probably be more aware of it in mm. terms of symptoms yeah, so I know what to look for yeah. even if you're not being screened I suppose if you're aware of it and we lose that kind of embarrassment that people might have yeah. that you're much more likely to seek um, advice do- doctor's advice yeah. earlier on anyway yeah, yeah Natalie you said to me what are the things you should be looking for and the key things is well, number one is blood in your poo basically mm. and there's no there's no uh, beating around the bush <laughs> here in terms of like what should you actually be looking for so definitely blood in your poo some weight loss mm. um, some tiredness that you know I was blaming being a working mum of two on my tiredness uh, the reality is that actually it was caused by anemia from, from blood loss. Right. Um, sometimes people have pain or a lump in their tummy and a change of bowel habits. And nine times out of ten, if you are under, say, the age of 50, it's probably going to be IBS or, or Crohn's or something mm-hmm. totally, totally different. Um, we still have repercussions on people, absolutely. So don't jump to the worst conclusion. Um, but my advice is I didn't go to the doctors because I was really embarrassed. Um, and I, uh, you know, I'm really not somebody that gets embarrassed. <laughs> really? <laughs> I was going to say, let's face it, I am not somebody that gets embarrassed. But if I get embarrassed, then I think, wow, you know, there are so many people who just push it to the side. Um, so really, this campaign is about getting people to to not be embarrassed about talking about their poo and their bowel habits and ultimately save lives by doing so. I was just thinking about what you were saying in the 7%. So being screened for bowel cancer, but we've also spoken about cervical cancer on this show. Mm. Is there a situation where we could end up 
in an anxious mess because it's a bit like, well, I need to get checked for this and this could happen and this could happen and this could happen. So how do we get checked whilst also managing our anxiety? Yeah, I think that's a really good, really, really good question. So I'm actually part of um, an Eva Pill campaign mm-hmm. um, that launches next week. And a lot of that is about getting people to just stop, you know, debunking those taboos. Let's just get talking about those taboos. Um, and I think, um, I think rather than getting into an anxious situation, I think it's understanding what's normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I'm, I'm not sure whether I know, well, I, I certainly didn't know what is normal bowel habits. What is a normal, you know, what is normal vaginal discharge, for mm-hmm. example? Mm-hmm. Um, because people don't talk about it because they don't want to use those words. Um, and I think actually the more we can have conversations mm-hmm. about all those different things um, from cervical cancer to um, our breasts, uh, to our poo habits, actually we just start to get used to it. And rather than panic about it, mm-hmm. we can then suddenly go, hang on a moment, that's not normal. Yeah. I'm then going to go and get myself checked out. Do you um, think we should, in the way that we have regular smear tests for cervical cancer, should we be encouraging regular colonoscopies for bowel cancer <laughs> or is that too far? I think it's a step too far. I think, um, you know, a colonoscopy is a, is, I actually had a smear test yesterday. <laughs> and I, yes, I, go have a smear well test, done. everyone. I, I, I was ladies. thinking about that. I actually had a smear test yesterday, but it is a very different kettle of fish to a colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, a colonoscopy is, is really easily done. Mm-hmm. You do need a bit of gas in there potentially but it is a longer procedure there is slightly more risks involved with it although the people doing it you know really experienced so there shouldn't be any complications Uh, but you do have to drink this liquid that basically means (laughs) all your insides come out so i was saying to emma that i had to have a colonoscopy uh, so my, my uncle was diagnosed with bowel cancer at 40. Oh, wow. Okay. So the whole family had the to get checked. The whole family got checked. Yeah. Yeah. And had to drink this horrible liquid, which means you flush your insides out. Literally. And it was great. Uh, and I went back asking for the same thing a year later so I could have a good washout and they wouldn't give it to me. But my insides were so shiny, squeaky clean. I was like, this is something we need to do. And Emma was like, you're just weird. I was like, no, no you feel, it's really, it sounds really odd. You actually feel really good after yeah, it. Just clean and just fresh and just, yeah. yeah. It, but it is quite alarming when you suddenly sit on the knee the first time. You're like, oh, oh, oh. Didn't expect that one. And it just keeps going and going, going and going. Yeah, absolutely. It's free economic corrugation really, isn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant. But no, I, th- I think I think as you know, as much as that would be great, we can actually screen with the right kind of kind of test. We can transfer the right people and refer the right people to get those colonoscopies and experience the you know the pleasure that we the have. Clean, clean freshness. How, how do you get over the embarrassment though? In terms of like, you know, you said that you were embarrassed to go to the doctor, but now, I mean, you're walking down tube carriages in a poo outfit. (laughs) Like, has has it been quite difficult to get over that embarrassment? Yeah, I think it has, absolutely. And I noticed it in my daughter. So my daughter, this is slightly different, but I do still think it's related, in that she, um, recently, they were learning about puberty at school. She's eight. Um, And she basically came back and was like, Oh, mummy, I'm disgusted. I'm going to get boobs and hair on my bits. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, why are you disgusted by that? And I think we do have quite a lot to do mm-hmm. in terms of just changing that mind shift. And I think the more we can talk about it, mm-hmm. 
the more we, you know, will stop hopefully getting embarrassed by it. It, it, it is not easy though. It's, it's not easy. I, I ended up taking pictures of my poo and that's and show, showing my sister and going, "Is this normal?" She's like, "No, I think you need to go to the doctor." Oh. Overshares of the backs, love it. <laughs> Deborah, thank you so much for coming and joining us. If anyone wants to find out more about the campaign or Bell Cancer Awareness Month or anything like that, where should they be looking? So, um, if I can signpost people to mm-hmm. on all forms of social media to no time to lose with the number two. Um, if you type that in um, either into Google, you can either go to the Sun's website. We've got kind of a whole section dedicated to that. Um, you can also look up Screen at Fifty, which will direct you to um, the petition, and hopefully we can get it over the half a million mark. Yay. Come join the four hundred and fifty k already. <laughs> Brilliant, definitely. Deborah James. Thank you so much for coming in. It's been joyous talking to you. Thank you for having me, ladies. <laughs> thank you. This has been Badass Women's Hours Best Bits. Uh, if you liked it, please do rate, review and subscribe us. We love that. Five stars. Um, or come chat to us on social media. You can find us at Badass Women's Hour HR at Badass Women's Hour or come talk to us individually. I'm at Harriet Minter. At Emma Sexton. And at Nat D. Campbell. And we'll be here again next week. Same time, same place. 